Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. there you're listening to talk sport welcome to another edition of fight of my life with him spencer oliver and me russ williams and over the course of the next hour we'll be speaking to a former boxer about the defining fight of their career the build-up story behind it the aftermath and a lot more besides and on this show we're speaking to this man When I found out I was fighting Jermaine Taylor, I was thinking to myself, I'm straight in now in deep water. Known as Bad Intentions, Jermaine Taylor. I was lying in bed and Rachel said to me, what's that noise? She said, I can hear a noise. And it was my heart beating inside my chest and making the sound of my breath murmur. I'm coming back to England, Mom, and I'm keeping my title. Fight week, when you go over and you do the press conference, reality kicks in and you realise, I'm in a big fight. Take it till you make it. If you don't believe in yourself and you're not confident, don't let anybody know. Frotch winked at Jermaine Taylor when he walked out. He is a confident man, Carl Frotch. I had to stop him. There was literally 20 seconds left on the clock. I hit Jermaine Taylor with 18 unanswered punches. Right then, Spence, before we hear from Carl, the Cobra, Frotch, what fight are we going to be talking about today? I think a few people might be surprised. And how do you sum up Frotch as a fighter? We're going to be talking about Carl Frotch defending his WBC super middleweight title against Jermaine Taylor. Now, this was an incredible fight. It was Cole Frotch's first defence of the title he'd previously won against Jean Pascal. Jermaine Taylor was a former undisputed middleweight champion who'd moved up to super middleweight. He'd previously beaten Bernard Hopkins, a pound-for-pound star, twice. And it was a risky fight for Cole Frotch. He was the underdog going in, and he went in to Jermaine's backyard and pulled off, for me, one of the biggest comebacks of British boxing history. Carl, that is some build-up. Welcome to Fight of My Life. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Looking forward to this. What a fight. Can we start at the beginning? How did the fight come about? And do you remember where you were when you actually got the call and said, hey, this fight is on? Yes, I was was in the gym with my coach, Rob McCracken, training down in London for the early part of my career. And then when I won the world title, I remained in London for a few years for a couple of defences right up until into the Super 6, which came after the Jermaine Taylor fight, actually. So I'd just become the WBC Super Middleweight World Champion by beating Jean Pascal for the vacant WBC title. My first defence was against mandatory bad intentions Jermaine Taylor. And when I got told that he was mandatory, I was thinking... There's no easy touch for the Cobra. I'm going straight in, <laughs> straight in with the big guns, with the deep end, with somebody like Jermaine Taylor, who I knew was fast and skillful and could fight and could punch. Um, I can remember watching Jermaine Taylor fight on the undercard when Howard Eastman fought Bernard Hopkins for the world title. And um, he didn't do enough Hopkins. He, he, did, he did the same against Joppy. He just seems to switch off for moment, moments of rounds. And 
unfortunately he chucked his chance away there but I can remember watching Bad Intentions Jermaine Taylor fight on the undercard and I was thinking to myself bloody hell this kid is fast it was quite a gloss, glossy amateur he had a good amateur career he medalled in the Sydney Olympics actually I can mm. remember watching him on the undercard of that fight thinking this kid is good he can fight and um, he can punch he was a middleweight at the time I obviously fought him at super middleweight yeah but yeah, when I found out I was fighting Jermaine Taylor, I was thinking to myself, I'm straight in now in deep water. But <laughs> I just fought Jean Pascal, who was a top, top operator, unbeaten Canadian, Commonwealth champion in the amateurs. So I was feeling confident. I was feeling like I was on the crest of this wave and, you know, I'd belong at world level. I've got the green and the gold belt, the belt that Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson had. I got that at home and I thought, I must deserve to be here. I've won the title. All right, the, the title was vacant because Joe Calzaghe vacated the title. But still, I'm now in there and I'm in the deep end and I've got to defend against Jermaine Taylor. And as you knew, Jermaine Taylor, as you said, had beaten Bernard Hopkins twice prior to this fight with you and was the former undisputed world middleweight champion. That didn't phase you at all then? All the marbles. Of course it phased me. I was thinking to myself, I am in serious deep water and I know there's going to be times when I'm going to be in the trenches taking grenades in this fight. But... I'm world champion. I, I got Rob McCracken in my corner who filled me full of confidence and self-belief because I was quite nervous as an amateur. I mean, everybody gets nervous. It's just how you deal with them and I probably didn't cope with them very well as an amateur. But when I met Rob McCracken and got my mind in gear and got my fitness and my training correct, I started to believe in myself. So the prospect of fighting Jermaine Taylor, the former undisputed middleweight champion, um, someone who you've just said there beat Bernard Hopkins twice, who, who's a legend in his own right, I was thinking to myself, right, if I belong at this level, if I belong at world level after beating um, Jean Pascal, I will certainly find out in this fight. Cole, you won the world title. You're making your first defence and you end up going abroad against a brilliant fighter, a former undisputed middleweight champion in Jermaine Taylor. Why did that fight end up abroad? Well, I won the world championship and it was pretty much in the time of the big financial crash, 2008, towards the back end of 2008 and right into 2009. You know, I fought for the world title on ITV, mainstream television, terrestrial television, which which would be usually good news because you get viewed by a lot of people and a lot of armchair fans. You get millions of viewers rather than, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of viewers. But unfortunately, ITV pulled out of boxing and I was kind of left in no man's land. Showtime wanted the show they wanted the fight they'd have probably took it as well because it's Jermaine Taylor as well as a British television audience but it, we literally got that fight shown on Sunday afternoon the next day which was really bad really a real poor effort I'm not going to point fingers or blame anybody but for me to be defending my WBC world title in the first defence against somebody like Jermaine Taylor for that not to be shown live on British television it's nothing short of a tragedy and a disgrace to be honest but it got shown on RTV the next day. But I was over in America because, purely because Showtime, the TV network, they were the payers. They were the guy paying the money for it. So we went over to America and it was pretty much all on Jermaine Taylor's terms from start to finish, which we'll go into. Did that upset you, having to go there though and it not being shown live on British TV? Like, you know, thinking about the fight when you won the world title in Nottingham against Jean Pascal which was an unbelievable fight by the way incredible fight you both had to go into the trenches you make your first defence against a brilliant fighter you said yourself had beaten Bernard Hopkins a pound for pound star twice you know did that upset you having to go into his backyard you know what I was so naive I didn't appreciate the position that I was in as world champion and I never never seek to get acknowledged and never seek to recognition which, which might be silly might have affected my earnings early on but I just listened to Rob McCracken, trusted in my promoter at the time, and just got on with it, basically. So when ITV pulled out of boxing, I was kind of in no man's land. Sky Sports didn't, for some reason, didn't want to show me. Um, and, you know, with ITV pulling out, we left, right, what do we do? Where do we go? So when, when the mandatory became reality in Jermaine Taylor and the offer to go over to America and fight on Showtime, I was kind of like, well, I'm champion. Jermaine Taylor's mandatory you've got to defend against mandatory and um, mm. you know it wasn't mega money but it was it was six figures in American dollars it was decent-ish for me but I never really looked at what I was earning in my career which was like I say whether that's naive or stupid or whatever it is I boxed for the titles I wanted the green and gold belt the belt that was held by Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson and I just won the belt and for me that meant everything and if I'm going to defend against Jermaine Taylor in my first fight and it's over in America 
then so be it. That's what champions do, right? That's what that's what you've got to do. But obviously, looking back on it, everything was against me. Uh, there was no British television behind me, and I was just literally just riding on the crest of this wave that was beating Jermaine Taylor and becoming world champion, not really understanding the business or the politics in the background, what goes off in boxing, just putting trust in my team, basically. And my yeah. team was very small. I got Mick Hennessy, my promoter, and my coach, Rob McCracken. My team started and finished there. In your training camp... Do you remember who you were sparring and, and how that went ahead of this fight? In the training camp for that, I was I was spent a lot of time in London. I was training in Loughton. Tony Sims had a gym there, so I was down there with Rob McCracken. And I was doing a bit of sparring with, um, with George Groves and a few other people in that gym. But I had a bit of a problem. I rolled my ankle really heavily about three weeks before the fight, so I couldn't run. My ankle swelled up. My whole leg went black up to my knee. So like from my big toe and all my toes right up to my knee, I rolled my ankle so bad. So for the last... Three weeks, I didn't really do much running. I was doing the um, the machine, like the, the cross trainer, the cross trainer machine, yeah, to take the impact off the ankle. And they also got a scratch on the eye as well, which which opened up when I was over in America. But you get little niggles and problems. But I was thinking, it's my first defence. My ankle's gone. I've got a scratch on my eye, and I've got to go over to Connecticut in a few weeks to defend my title. Actually, I've missed a very significant part actually because um, I'm. I'm thinking too deep about Loughton and, and the, the Jim Gaper. <laughs> I spent the last. I spent the last three weeks in Niagara-on-the-Lake in Canada because that's that's like the north side of, of America, right on the coast of America. So Canada meets America on that coast, on Niagara-on-the-Lake. Yeah, it's Buffalo, there. isn't it? The town of Buffalo. That's I right, think. yeah. yeah. And, and, and in that gym there, believe it or not, my chief sparring partner for three weeks was John Pascal. You know? oh, wow. <laughs> so I just beat him for the world title and he came along. I mean, what a sport. Mm. And he gave me some really good rounds of sparring. Him and his big brother, his big brother was trying to beat me up, a cruiserweight. I don't think he ever did anything as a pro. But no, it was fascinating to beat a guy for the world title then use him as, as chief sparring before the fight with Jermaine Taylor. It's madness, but it just shows how, how boxing is and how you know, we're all, we all look after each other in this sport and we're all, we're all kind of in the, in the same boat together. So yeah, after I'd finished training in, in Canada and sparring with Pascal for the Jermaine Taylor fight... Um, I went over to Connecticut literally a week before the fight and just got my final preparations done um, at the Foxwoods Hotel Resort Casino in Connecticut. And to me, that was Las Vegas, and this was big-time boxing. And I was excited to be fighting Jermaine Taylor and nervous as hell and worried and thinking, this is going to go one of two ways. I'm either going to get totally outclassed and hammered or I'm going to slug it out and give him a brutal fight and drag him into the trenches and maybe, maybe not get the win. But I always believed in myself every time I stepped through the ropes. But I knew I was in real uncharted territory against a top fighter. Wearing black trunks, trimmed in the Union Jack, he proudly represents his home of Nottingham, England. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the former British and Commonwealth champion tonight making the first defense of his world crown, introducing the undefeated WBC super middleweight champion of the world, Carl the Cobra Rush. Carl Rush taking the biggest gamble of his career. If he wins, he becomes part of boxing's elite. If he loses, he goes back home with nothing. It's the fight of my life on TalkSport. Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver, as usual. This week, we're talking to Carl Froch, the Cobra, about a momentous fight against Jermaine Taylor, 25th of April, 2009, for the WBC World Super Middleweight title. Well, Carl, we've dealt with uh, a lot of the training camp and the build-up and how you heard about the fight. Just before we move on to fight day itself, did you at any moment in your hotel room or in a quiet moment sitting down on your own think to yourself, this Jermaine Taylor, uh, the only way I'm going to retain my title is I'm probably going to knock him out? I never doubt myself to the point where I think I've got to knock the guy out to beat him. I always believe in my confidence to outwork somebody or force the stoppage, maybe knock them out as a bonus. I wasn't a one-punch concussive knockout man. People who watch George Groves get flattened at Wembley might disagree with that. But that was one of them perfect punches. <laughs> against Jermaine Taylor, I knew I was in a serious fight against somebody who could beat me. Of course I did. And my now wife, Rachel, came over to Connecticut about four days before the fight. And I, I wish I never really saw her because I never liked to talk to my mom or my, my, my girlfriend at the time, but my wife now, Rachel. I don't like to have that emotional involvement before a fight. I like to just 
do my own thing don't want to do anything lovey-dovey and um, anything too emotional I want to stay in fight zone and I made the mistake of seeing Rachel and letting her stay in my room for two nights before the fight as Rocky said in his film no funny business I, I used to abstain for, for many weeks before a fight but my wife was there and I was lying in bed um, the night before the weigh-in and Rachel said to me what's that noise and I was like what noise She's like, I can hear a noise. And it was my heart beating inside my chest and making the sound of my breath, like murmur, with the sound of my heart beating. It was really loud and quite off-putting. It's like you can hear, you can almost hear the panting and the pounding of the heart. And I was lying there, as I always do before the weigh-in and before, before the fight the night before, and just visualising the fight. And when I put myself in front of Jermaine Taylor, my heart is beating because my adrenal glands are releasing adrenaline into my blood system and I'm, I'm living the, the ring walk and the, the ring entrance and I'm visualising what's going to happen and how the first round's going to pan out with a jab and a movement and don't get caught and keep your guard up and just don't reach in, don't do anything stupid and my heart's pounding my chest and my breathing's patterning to the sound of the heartbeat and, and Rachel's never heard that before. That was actually Rachel's first fight. It was her first experience in the boxing arena I can quite vividly remember explaining to her that my heart's pounding because I'm frightened to death. <laughs> so that's just <laughs> that's just how my body reacts, and that's just what happens. So yeah, to to answer your question, I was very nervous, and I was concerned that this fight could go against me. But to be honest, I thought that with most fights I'd get in, I, I was always quite switched on to the fact and realistic. I'd never been beat at the time, never been put down in my whole career, but I was always nervous before I got into the ring, and um, it was no exception for Jermaine Taylor. I was I was extra nervous. That feeling that you had there, you're saying that, you know, you felt your heart cold. Is that because you recognised that now you'd won that world title in a really tough fight against Jean Pascal, that now you'd moved up to another level and Jermaine Taylor was another level again? Because this guy was still, you know, riding the wave. This guy was still ranked right up there as one of, you know, one of the pound-for-pound pound best fighters around at that time. Is that because you felt like you was moving up to another level I think that, potentially that yeah, possibly Spencer I think that because I, the reality had set in that in a couple of days um, because that was before the weigh-in but you know yourself you, you, well I used to put the fight at the back of my mind in training camp get on with the training it's ages away yet two months you've still got a month you know you can relax and not get too nervous but fight week when you get over and you do the press conference and the day before the weigh-in reality kicks in and you realise I'm now in a fight I'm in a big fight. I've got to switch on. And when you start to realise that actually this is happening and there's no getting away from it, the nerves kick in. Let's take you, Carl, to the day of the fight. You wake up on, on the morning of the fight. I'm just wondering how you were feeling. You're away from home, but you are a world champion. Was it the usual fight day feeling for Carl Froch? My mum was there. My, my partner, now wife, Rachel, was there as well. My brother's couple of close friends I didn't have a big entourage at all you kind of swan about on fight day you've got the way in that's done and dusted out of the way you can have something to eat and drink um, like rehydrate your body you should never dehydrate but you always cut down the fluids and you feel a little bit dry after the weigh in you've had a great night after the weigh in early night plenty of food rehydration then the next day you wake up and you've kind of got all day to kill all day kind of sitting around waiting for the fight just resting but then I was walking around the casinos in, in at the Foxwoods Hotel Casino Resort and it gets a bit boring and a bit like what am I doing I'm just killing the clock just trying to get the time to tick away and yeah I spent all day just quite nervous walking around thinking right I need to go and settle down now in my, in my room and get something to eat and have a little rest and put my feet up you know what? It was all new to me because okay. I just won the world title and then it's Jermaine Taylor and it was abroad and, you know, I had a couple of problems. I'd never, never no excuses with me. Anybody who's seen me fight and watched me go through my career, I'd never given excuses. But I talked about Royal Lee Mankell earlier. Well, before the fight, like the day before, I thought the fight was off because I got I got a scratch on my cornea from sparring. So I've got, I've got a condition now called a reoccurring corneal erosion. And the night before the weigh-in, my eye opened up, the scratch opened up, so my eye kind of goes bright red, like beetroot red bloodshot, and constantly streams, and I had to go to the hospital the night before the fight and get some drops, and then I'd had these drops in my eye, which helped it and soothed it. Then I found out it was like a steroid drop that could be banned substance, so I had to take that to then the fight and let the doctor look at it, and the, 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 the drug testing officer was there saying, oh, I'm not sure, I think it would be okay, but we'll find out when you do your sample. 
but this whatever this juice was that they gave me in America it was good stuff because it kind of sorted my eye the day before the weigh-in and I still passed the drug test thankfully but um, I was kind of preoccupied so after the weigh-in and then fight day I was just relieved that my eye felt better and I was just kind of killing the clock down towards getting to the venue and getting it on and Cole, you get to that venue, you get in your dressing rooms, you get your hands wrapped, you get your gloves on, you start warming up, you've gone through the motions, all of a sudden, time comes. We get into the ring walk. You walk up to do that ring walk, you see a sea of American supporters screaming for Jermaine Taylor. Did reality hit in then? What Did you realise the extent of the task? You know what, it's a really good question, I'm really going to give you an insightful answer in a minute, but you fast-forwarded past the point there that I think I need to share with the fans and the listeners. As champion, you used to get the home changing rooms and you used to get the champion treatment, but I was away from home and I got to the venue, which was quite a small theatre-like venue, but the actual changing rooms, when I got to my changing rooms, it was no bigger than this recording studio and it was wedged in with a sofa, a cupboard a desk and a chair there was no room for even you Spencer was that was that done purposely of course it was they put me in the smallest room at the venue and Rob McCracken being Rob McCracken very matter of fact straight down to business got in the changing rooms I was thinking bloody hell this is small what are they doing to me he just picked the chair up got it out got the table out so the room was emptied instantly he's like right this will do this is perfect no problem plenty of room here so straight away I was switched off from thinking there's a problem to thinking Rob's got it sorted he's sorted it so we emptied the room out got my wraps on got the gloves on and I was warming up on the pads absolutely petrified Spencer really really nervous more nervous than ever it switched on the reality of I'm fighting Jermaine Taylor in about 20 minutes had kicked in it was my first world title defence away from home and I'm up there and literally in this room just with Ron McCracken and my brother and um, and Mark Seltzer and, and the new cuts man because Tony Sims couldn't get out there. But after we'd got through the changing rooms, the little tiny room, and got warmed up and we got called for the fight, you're on in 20 minutes, they said. 20 minutes, get yourself ready. I'm thinking, right, okay, I'll have a little warm up. Then all of a sudden they've come in and they've said, right, you're on now. The fight's mm. been pulled. I'm like, hang on a minute. I, <laughs> I thought I had 20 minutes. Because you know yourself... You want to get a sweat on, you want to get warm, you want to have a good pad session, and then you want a little bit of a relax, and then when you start to cool down a bit, you want to get back hot again, and then you want to get in the ring warm and sweating. Well, that was all thrown out the window because they kind of stitched me up and said, right, you've got 20 minutes, now you've only got two minutes. So we jumped into the lift, we had to walk down the corridor, get into a little lift, went down this small lift, and literally the lift opened up, and I'm in the middle of the American crowd, mm. all just like baying for my blood, shouting and swearing and screaming I thought I know Jermaine Taylor's the home fighter and he's, he's got the home crowd advantage and whatever but literally there was a guy to the right of me as I was walking towards the ring he got some Budweiser and he was shouting English summer I'm being polite English this English that and I thought hang on a minute we get on there we're English in America we're allies leave it out obviously a big Jermaine Taylor fan had a few too many Budweiser's and I was thinking about stretching my arms out and like just doing like a big stretch back and kind of punching him in the face because I was really wind up. I actually got wet with something as well. Somebody spat something at me. I was thinking, I'm going to backhand this geezer. Because I was stood there for a bit before the music kicked in and before we actually started the ring walk. And I've got this guy to my right really abusing me. And I was going to backhand him, but I didn't because the guy had glasses on. And so I looked at him and thought, I'm going to put one on him. Because I was quite an aggressive guy and I was quite, you know, I won't take any crap off anybody. I was thinking, this guy's abusing me. Something's wet me. I don't know if it's from the top or from him. I'm thinking, I'm walking in the ring to fight Jermaine Taylor. I'm getting abused here. And I'm not having it. So I was literally going to warm up, smack him in the face. But sorry, he had glasses on. So I left him alone. He got away with that. And then we did the ring walk. Climbed into the ring. And Jermaine Taylor's there waiting for me because I was champ. I got in second. Yeah, and you look at Jermaine Taylor when you're in that ring and you give him that little wink. I mean, what was the, what was the reason behind that, Cole? Like you said there, they was playing mind games in the dressing room. There was loads of furniture. You get brought into the middle of the crowd. There's drinks being thrown over you. You get into the ring with all that you've just been through and you look really relaxed and you give him this little wink. What was yeah. the wink for? What was all that about? Well, listen, a good, a good psychologist said to me when I was doing my sports science and phys ed course at Loughborough University, he said to me, fake it till you make it. You know, if you don't believe in yourself and you're not confident... Don't let anybody know. Just pretend you're confident. And that's where the saying fake it till you make it comes from. So on the inside, I'm crushed and I'm nervous as hell. On the outside, people think I'm cool and calm. And I got in the ring, saw Jermaine Taylor and give him a wink. And the wink was a bit like, I'm here. 
I'm not worried. I wink at you, son. I'm confident. The fight gets underway. Round one, Carl Taylor. Notorious fast starter. He did against you in this fight. Some good right hands. You came back with one of your own. What sort of fight, if you can remember, were you thinking, OK, this is this fight is now going to be like this. I'm, I'm only in the first round, but I think I've got it sussed. No, it was, it was an opener in round one where usually I feel away with a jab and get my range out and try and find range. I can remember Jermaine Taylor hitting with a right hand, then catching with a hook, and I was trying to jab and ease into it, but I realised pretty soon and pretty quick that Jermaine Taylor was too fast for me. Too fast. And um, if I'm totally honest with myself, probably too skillful. So I just, from round one, tried to box and just keep the jab going and try and get hit with as little as possible. But to be honest, it didn't go that well for me early on. Coming up on Fights of My Life on Talk Sport. Thought to myself, okay, I'm on the floor here. Now's where I get up. So I stood up, looked over at Jermaine Taylor, nodded at him as if to say good shot, and I smiled at him to let him know, hang on, I'm still okay. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. With us, fighting my life, Spencer Oliver, me, Ross Williams, and the great Carl Frotch, of course. And we're talking about Carl's fight of his life against Jermaine Taylor back in April 2009, Spence, round three. And uh, something happened to him that had never happened before. It certainly did in round three, Carl. He was actually winning the round, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you got caught with a big right hand. And for the first time in the Cobra's career, he goes down. What was you thinking at that point? Oh, what just happened? But you're right, Spencer. Round three was going well. I was finding my range. I was timing Jermaine Taylor on the way in, and I had to time him because he was too quick for me. He was just too fast. Fast hands, sprinter against a marathon runner. And because I had a bit of success, because I caught him with a couple of shots, I got careless. When I say careless, what I mean is I tried to hit him with a big uppercut from out of range. A big, silly, Nassim Hamid canvas-scraping uppercut. Maybe it wasn't that bad, but in my head I was thinking, I'm going to wind something up and leap in. If you watch the clips before I actually got knocked down, the couple of flurries before I got put down, I threw an uppercut, left my feet behind, and got caught with a right hand and almost turned around on my feet. And then I backed up, kept my guard tight, because I, I felt hurt. And as I backed up to the ropes, I watched him coming in, watched him coming forward to me. I had my back was against the ropes. Overhand right, didn't even see it coming because it was too quick. I think he threw a jab or a fake. I responded or reacted, and he threw an overhand right, and it caught me right, right side, the side, left side. Was it the chin or the side of the ear? I don't know, but it was kind of around that area, and he just flattened me. My legs went from under me, and I was sat down on the seat of my pants for the first time, which you rightly pointed out, Spencer, mm. of my whole career, amateur or professional. I've never been put down. 
and the crowd, the American crowd at this stage were hugging each other. The, you know, the, the, the place erupted. Did that affect you? Did you sense that when you was on the floor? Because looking at the fight, when I watched the fight, you looked for the first time I've seen you like shocked. You looked like you, you was in a place that you'd never been before. Did the crowd and everything else going on around you, did that affect you at all? Listen, it all happens in a bit of a quick days. And they um, say when your life flashes in front of you, it goes in slow motion. To be honest, I can't remember the journey from being on my feet to being on the seat of my pants. I can't remember that journey. Um, I can just remember being on the floor and thinking, I've just been knocked down. Bloody hell, right, what do I do? I've never been here before. So I looked over to my corner, Rob McCracken. I didn't look over and say, what do I do? Help. I looked over as if to say, I'm all right. I'm actually okay. I'm going to stand up in a second, but I'm going to take the count. I don't know how I managed to get that in my head. Never been put down before. I just thought, I'll take the eight. I'm not going to jump up. So I sat there for a second, gathered my thoughts, thought to myself, okay, I'm on the floor here. Now's where I get up. So I stood up, looked over at Jermaine Taylor, nodded at him as if to say, good shot. You know, well done. You got me there. And I smiled at him to let him know, hang on, I'm still okay. I'm still all right. Just That was just my own personality, my own stubborn personality, my own my gritty mentality saying to him, listen, you might have put me down, but I'm not staying down. And from that point, I kind of I kind of woke up. I was quite fortunate because it came towards the end of round three mm. and I didn't get hit with too many shots after that. Jermaine Taylor never kind of had the time to go for the finish. Then the bell went. I was able to go and have a chat with Rob McCracken in the minute rest. Yeah, and you and you got so you got through that round three, but round four you showed amazing powers of recovery because in round four you come out firing, was dominating the round. Was that the wake up call you needed? That knockdown because from that knockdown on, you seem to gain momentum. You seem to be getting into the fight better. Well, I was I was nervous behind my jab. The guy was too fast for me. He was catching me. I couldn't really get anything going until the start of round three. When I landed a couple of shots, I then got careless and overconfident and got caught with that overhand right, which put me down. After Rob McCracken read me the right act, well, he didn't actually. He's quite methodical and quite quite cool and calm, McCracken. You never really see him get too animated. But he just told me I made a mistake. You had that round under control and oh. you went for a big shot and left yourself wide open. Listen to me. You've got to get tired here. You're coming out and you're pulling your head up and you're sticking your chin in the air and he's just coming back at you over the shot one too. Yeah, because you're loading up and you're looking for big shots and you're pulling out with your chin in the air. I knew I'd made a mistake. I leaped in, left my feet behind and tried to hit him with a big silly shot that was never going to land, especially against someone as quick as Jermaine Taylor. I knew I'd made a mistake and I just needed to just maintain my focus and just box. So I thought, I might be down, but I'm very, very far from being out. And um, it's time for me now to just stay disciplined, stay focused, listen to McCracken and just get behind that jab and that tight defence. I mean, I don't have much of a defence, but what defence I do have is which is my right glove in front of my face and a bit of head movement and smart little bits of footwork. I was just focusing on that. Yeah. Let's go to round six. You land a huge right. He feels it, really feels it. Did you think to yourself, ah, oh, this could be the turning point? I, I did. I hit him and he stumbled back. Was was that round six, was it? I yeah. mean, I've watched that fight so many times that there's so much action from, from round three right up to the final bell. Um, if that's round six when I caught him, I knew because he backed up after the shot hit him and he, he looked a bit unsteady on his leg and he did a little mad shake and stumbled a little bit. And then I leaped him with a couple more shots but he was still dangerous. It wasn't long after that when the bell went and Rob McCracken just put me back in check and put me back in my box and said, listen, the fight's not over yet. Just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep it going. This fight, the longer this fight goes, you're you're the 12-round fighter. You're a 15-round fighter. You're old school. You're a throwback. Just keep doing what you're doing, but don't get careless. Don't give him a chance. And we get into round seven, and for the first time in the fight, now you're starting to push Jermaine Taylor back you know, and you dominate that round. You get into round eight and you start landing good right hand. You're closing the gap. You're getting closer. Did you feel at this stage Jermaine Taylor was tiring? Well, you're right. I've gone from being on my back foot, trying to time him as he comes in because when I was putting him on his back foot and I was trying to force the issue and set the pace and make the action happen, I was getting counterpunched by the faster, more skillful guy in Jermaine Taylor. But once I hurt him and caught him, I thought to myself, right, my natural instincts, regardless of what Rob McCracken tells me, if I've got someone caught and I catch them and I feel like I'm getting to them, I'll go forward. I'm a front foot fighter. I enjoy it on the front foot. I don't mind walking through a couple of punches, stupidly, by the way, but I don't mind taking a few mm. to get a few of mine off. And because I could sense Jermaine Taylor was fading and he was feeling the power of my punches, them little 10-ounce gloves, they hurt. 
my hands are big and you can feel the bone straight through the glove. And when I connect with a shot on the chin of anybody, whether it puts them down or not, I know they've felt the impact of the punch and I know they're feeling that effect and it's hurting them and it's taking their way, their stamina, their heart, and it's making the soul get destroyed every time I land a shot. And I've got Jermaine Taylor backing up and I was catching him and I just thought, I've just got to keep this slow pressure, this educated pressure throughout every round. We get to the end of round eight and you're seen to say to Rob McCracken, I've got him, I've got him. Oh, you're getting on top and then you lock up and let him hit you. You ain't got him. You've got a boxing. You've got to listen to what I'm telling you. You ain't got him. You've got a boxing because anything big is going to count you. Well, I was wrong because it was at the end of round eight and we're going to get to see where this fight went for people who don't know and it obviously yeah. went a few more rounds after that but you're right, yeah. I did say to Rob, I've got him because I knew I was getting to him. I knew I was catching him. I knew I was hurting him and there's, there's no better feeling than your opponent in front of you unfolding and tiring and looking weak whilst I always felt in the championship rounds, round eight, right through to round 12, nine, 10, 11, and 12, the last four rounds, I always felt like I grew in confidence and I got my second wing and I still felt like I was strong and fit. Many times I'd look at my opponent and see that he was tiring and becoming slower and more drained as I started to feel stronger and that filled me full of confidence. I, like Rob said, I think I was a 15-round fighter. Spencer, at this point in the fight, how have you got it scored? So at this point in the fight, I've, I've got Cole, you probably two or three rounds behind at this point of the fight. Did you sense that at the time? Did you feel that you was behind at that time? And, and did you feel, even as early as this, that you may have needed a knockout? Well, no, I didn't because... I got knocked down in round three. I knew I was definitely behind, but I wasn't thinking too much. This is why Rob McCracken's such a genius and he's so brilliant. I wasn't thinking about the points. I wasn't thinking, am I winning or am I losing? I never do. I never did think that when I was in the, in the ring with Rob McCracken. I was thinking, I've got to win this fight. I've got to stop the guy. I've got to try and put it on him. I used to try and force the stoppage when I used to box with everybody, whoever it was. So as soon as I got Jermaine Taylor hurt and on his back foot, I was just thinking to myself... I'm going to back him up and knock him out or get the stoppage and get the job done. We get to round 11 and at this stage, Jermaine Taylor is starting to wilt. He's looking tired. You're in complete control. You win the round and you win it big. Did you think then round 12, I'm going to go out there and finish this fight? Because at that stage, Cole, you could have been two or three rounds down. You're, in, you're on foreign soil. You know that Jermaine Taylor was a rated fighter. They wanted the title back over there. Did you feel then you're in round 12, I'm going to, I need the knockout win to win this fight? I thought he's going to see the finish line now you know it's the final furlong of the big race and he's going to just dig in now and see the round out and he's probably going to have a go back because he might as well it's the last round right when I got sent out for the last round I didn't get sent out to stop Jermaine Taylor and knock him out but I kind of knew deep down bloody hell he survived the last three rounds I had him in round 9 10 I had him in 6 and 8 and he was still there round 11 and I put it on him but I did think to myself going out I wasn't thinking to myself I need the stoppage I was in the zone and in that aggressive mode of putting my shots together and backing him up that I was just going to continue the round 12 how I finished round 11 just keep the pressure on keep backing him up keep working hit him as many times as I can as hard as I can without getting hit back that was my mindset and that's what I did in round 12 from the bell. I have it a two-point fight for Taylor, but it could easily be a draw or a one-point fight, perhaps, for Carl Frotch at this point. You both come out and you both roll the dice. It's round 12. You both know it's close. You're both trading off shots. And halfway through the round, you land a huge right hand. Jermaine Taylor's legs go. Right hand oh. stop. with a great flurry he was shaky he was on his back foot I was catching Rob was calling me and I could see Rob waving his arms forward towards himself in the bottom right hand corner I backed him up into the ropes he moved off to the side again I hit him with a couple of jabs right hand backed him up I switched his southpaw it was a bit awkward he was against the ropes and then I, I sort of threw an uppercut that went straight through his guard and it landed flush on his chin and put him over The referee counted to eight, gave him every chance to get up. He got up and he said, walk towards me. And Jermaine Taylor walked towards him and he, he cleaned his gloves off. And the referee said, box. And I thought, I've still got a job to do. 30 seconds left. 
had to stop him. There was literally 20 seconds left on the clock. I hit Jermaine Taylor with 18, 1 8 unanswered punches. The referee had no choice but to jump in and stop the fight because the last three shots, his arms were by his side, his head was slumped and I think the towel was coming in as well. He'd had enough and the referee got hold of him, kept him on his feet and I got stopped. And if you're not going to play the commentary, I'll do the commentary for you. And the American <laughs> commentary said, I'm coming back to England, Mom, and I'm keeping my title. And that was just a moment that I will never, ever forget. Probably one of the best moments, if not the best moment of my whole boxing career and let me tell you I've had some amazing amazing moments throughout my career but that was one that I will never ever ever forget if Jermaine Taylor could have stood up and finished the fight he would have won ladies and gentlemen we have the time of 2 minutes 46 seconds in round number 12. He is the winner by way of spectacular knockout. He is still undefeated and yes! still the WBC super middleweight champion of the world, Carl the Cobra. It's a fight in my life on TalkSport, Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver, and this week, Carl the Cobra Frotch, who has just defended his WBC World Super Middleweight crown in the United States of America against Jermaine Taylor, with all the underhand stuff before the fight and one of the greatest final rounds by a British boxer ever away from the shores. Just before we move on to what you're up to now, Carl, did this fight mould you I suppose is the right word to become the fighter that you went on to be I think every fight that you're involved with amateur and professional has a lasting effect um, whether it's an easy fight for you and you just outbox somebody or whether you get caught and knocked down in round three like I did against Jermaine Taylor or whether you're just in a slugfest for 12 rounds you're constantly learning I learned so much in my last fight against Groves my final fight that I decided to retire from because different things happen in the fight and different things go through your mind and you respond and react differently and you know as you get older you slow down and you, you have to adapt then like Bernard Hopkins if you look at his style early on and look at his style late on he stopped throwing a million punches around and he stopped you know later on he started to throw a lot of feints and using his footwork better and you evolve as a fighter so I realised after the Jermaine Taylor fight that I was a solid well-deserved world champion and I, I, I thought to myself you know I'm, I'm enjoying this actually I beat um, Jean Pascal for the title I've now just defended against Jermaine Taylor in, in an amazing fight but what next what next for me I, I still didn't even know what was next I really didn't Carl you do a lot of media work now do you enjoy your life now that you're not fighting anymore? You know what I really do? When I was fighting, I could never imagine myself not being a fighter. I think a lot of fighters um, get that thought, what am I going to do after I've boxed? Because when you when you box and you're a professional fighter and you enjoy the sport and you love it, it takes everything. You, it's not a part-time sport. It takes your heart and soul. It takes your dedication. It takes all your time up. And it, it consumes all of your energy, mentally and physically boxing. It does when, for me, because I was serious about it, I wanted to win and I wanted to be a champ. I couldn't do anything else with any kind of energy or any kind of passion. It was just boxing. And um, I could never see myself retiring. But as, as the fights go on and as the years go on and you become a bit older and I get into my mid-30s and I start to struggle at the weight and injuries start lingering around. I mean, I had four operations, quite serious operations, whilst I was boxing. I had an ACL reconstructed. I had two major surgeries on my hand. I had a septorhinoplasty because I couldn't breathe out my nose. My nose was smashed to bits and various cortisone injections in my elbows and ankles, etc., etc. But, you know, it's a tough sport physically, but... People underestimate what it takes off you mentally as well. And towards the end of my career, I've, I've got a young family. I've got Rocco, who's now 10, and Natalia's 7, and my, my daughter Penelope, she's, she turned 5 this week. So as your life changes and you, you, you become more mature and you start having a family, you start to look at the exit route. You start to plan when you're going to retire and when you're going to finish. I love my job now. I, I mean, well, I love my life now. I, I don't really... You know, I've worked for Sky Sports as a pundit and an analyst. I absolutely love it. I've been very, very privileged because I've been to some massive fights. So, you know, I was able to sit ringside and commentate on Anthony Joshua when he fought Klitschko. And I looked around the stadium and it was then when I realised, actually, I've done this. 
I've, I've boxed in the middle of this ring at Wembley Stadium in front of 80,000 fans I just said 80,000 fans <laughs> I, I got it in there um, but I didn't know I'd done that or I couldn't remember doing that when I actually did it against Groves because I was so tunnel visioned I was almost in like a state of hypnosis on the ring walk because I was so focused so determined to do the job I didn't take it in I didn't pay attention to the car I wasn't interested it was a boxing ring with a guy in front of me with a bold tweed bit of ginger hair <laughs> bit bold and he was getting knocked out and that's all I was thinking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit him on the chin. So, and you don't really think about what you're gonna do after you retire. And um, like I said, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've dropped into a, a job with Sky Sports as a pundit and an analyst. I absolutely love it. I'm very lucky because I got to get to a lot of big fights, and um, I get to sit here and talk to wonderful people like yourself and um, Spencer on, <laughs> on shows on shows like this. And yeah, you know, great. it's really enjoyable talking about when, a career when you've had a fantastic career. Carl. I want to mention about you know the second George Groves fight after that fight after that victory you then decide it's time to hang up your gloves why was this the correct time? Because when I beat Mikel Kessler in the rematch it was on Sky Sports pay-per-view so you know I started to earn a bit of money now you know proper money for being a prize fighter and being in the fights I've been involved in all my life to then now be finally there and get my get my sort of accolades and my just desserts at this time of my career, it was kind of, for me, I'd give up for it mentally. I'd, I kind of started to fall out of love with the sport. I got to, I got Rocco and I got Natalia, but I got a young family. I, I'd earned a lot, of mo- a lot of money. I'd become a world champion multiple times and I'd just challenged Mikel Kester for his WBA title after beating Butte for the IBF title. So there was two belts on the line. And I beat him fair and square in a rematch in a close fight, but a great fight that everybody loved. Sky pay-per-view loved it. All the fans that were there in the arena, everyone loved it. And I was like, what else is there left to do? But actually, there was a kid called George Groves who wanted to challenge me for my belts, and he was mandatory for the IBF. So I boxed George Groves, and to skim over it really quick, I nearly got beat in the first fight. I wasn't fit, and I wasn't well prepared. I didn't train properly. I was doing a dance show with my, my wife, Rachel, called Stepping Out on ITV for half of the training camp. Got in the ring with, with George Groves in Manchester and nearly got beat. Oh, I did get beat up for six rounds and I managed to turn it around and force the stoppage and, you know, the controversy with um, with Howard Foster jumping in and stopping the fight then created the controversial rematch, which was massive at Wembley Stadium, which we all remember. I was looking at the exit route and looking at retiring after the Kessler fight. Then after that, I had the first George Groves fight and kind of got away with that fight with the skin in my teeth by beating him in a controversial decision because Howard Foster jumped in, in many people's opinion, too early. Even though I won the first fight, I was feeling like I needed redemption because it felt like a loss. Even though I won, the press and the media response and the crowd response was that I lost the fight and I was lucky to get the stoppage. So I've got to fight him again. And I didn't particularly want to. I knew I had to. I knew I was going to fight him again. But I was thinking, I didn't want to fight him once. And I, and I got beat up for six rounds. Now I've got to fight him again in a rematch. But it's massive. It's at Wembley Stadium. It's huge. So, you know what I'm going to do for this one? I'm going to train. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be professional. I'm going to make sure I turn up in the best possible shape this 36-year-old, nearly 37-year-old can, which is what I ended up doing. I had a proper 12-week camp. I had some great sparring with Chris Eubank Jr. and, and all the boys at the England squad at the EIS in Sheffield psychologist Chris Marshall helped me out massively Ellison Mark Ellison the, the nutritionist was there I was just doing everything like I'd never done it before but to the top top level so my, my diet and nutrition my strength and conditioning my headspace you know my psychologist was talking to me and I couldn't have been any better for nearly 37 years old than what I was I was just absolutely so confident but the the main thing that got me through that training camp and got me to the finish line to where I ironed out George Groves in front of 85,000 at Wembley Stadium. <laughs> the thing that got me there, the thing that got me there was actually knowing that that was my last fight. Yeah. Every morning run I did, it's my last one, it's my last camp. Every sparring session I did with Tony Bellew trying to decapitate me and Chris Eubank Jr. trying to prove a point. This is my last sparring session. This is it. I'm done after this. So it was always in your mind. Always in my mind. I knew I, I knew it was curtains on my career after that fight with Groves, the rematch. And, you know, it had to be because the desire, the desire wasn't quite totally gone, but the, the desire was going after the, um, after the Kessler rematch. From your last fight to our last question, I'm fighting my life, Carl Froch. If there's anything that you, looking back on your career, could change... Would you? And if so, what would it be? 
you know what I've, I've I've been asked this question before and I've thought about it and and you know when your head hits the pillow and there's any any demons creep into your mind and you, you look back and you've got any regrets for your career but everything I've done throughout my whole career from start to finish it's all been and I don't want to use George Groves' words but everything for a reason everything's moulded me into the fighter I am getting knocked down by Jermaine Taylor losing to Andre Ward I mean the loss to Andre Ward gave me the mindset and the mentality to, to focus and, and drill myself and get myself into an animal state and, and a, a total different person for the Lucian Butte fight. The Andre Ward loss did that for me. So I can't say I want to change that. I can't change the first Mikel Kester loss because the rematch was bittersweet. That got me back on Sky Sports and on pay-per-view. And I got the win, so I got redemption. You know, I retired on my terms. Our champion, I retired a champion at Wembley Stadium in front of all them people with that platform and I, and I had such a big accolade. I look back on my career now, I look back on the last punch that I threw and I always smile about it. Honestly, I've got no regrets at all. I think I retired at the right time. I was very, very fortunate to get out on my terms. I retired from boxing. Boxing didn't retire me. Champ, it's been such a pleasure having you on Fighting My Life. Carl Froch, you've been an amazing guest. Spencer and myself have really enjoyed you being with us. I'm sure the talk sport listeners have enjoyed it as well. Thank you for coming Listen, in. Listen, people talk about me saying I love to talk about myself. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but I look back on my career with great pride and I think that shows and I'm very passionate about what I did and um, I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks again for having me on. Anytime, guys. It's a pleasure. This has been Fight of My Life with Carl the Cobra Froch, world champion. And keep listening for plenty more boxing life stories. Until next time, from Spencer over there and me over here and Carl, it's goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.